This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm here with William Kaiser. He is a longtime listener of the show, and he's a friend and acquaintance of mine through the show. It's very been very good to meet him. Uh, William, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, it was a, uh, I think, uh, well, it was it was fortuitous to meet uh, to meet you because I think uh, your background and your way of coming to Nietzsche is uh, pretty unique. So I guess we'll just start out with me asking you about that, about your um, what brought you to Nietzsche and your sort of uh, career through academia and your intellectual journey, so to speak. Thanks for having me, by the way, today, because um, I'm a big fan. I've listened probably to three to five hours of your podcasts a week, and I'm up to date on them. I re-listen to many of them. I haven't. I don't think I've found another source of Nietzsche material um, that I found as useful as yours, and I really appreciate their uh, uh, their existence. Um, Thank you for that. Thank you. I'm a. I'm. I came to Nietzsche later in life. I'm 73, and I didn't come to Nietzsche um, like an obsession with him, which I consider myself as having at this point. Um, until I was in my early 60s. So I've only been um, studying Nietzsche uh, pretty uh, nonstop for a decade. Um, and it's sort of interesting how I got here because I started off when I was a high school student, I was told that I should find a trade that I wasn't college material. And that's, you know, that, that's what happens to you when you're told that you, you sort of believe it. And then um, happenstance came and uh, I went to electronics school, but I, I basically got drafted during Vietnam in 1970, two years or, or two weeks before my 21st birthday. And it was really that experience. I was lucky enough to be sent to Germany as a newspaper reporter and I actually produced a weekly uh, a radio program on uh, American Forces Network Nuremberg. Um, very interesting. Uh, and, and and when I got out of the army, I was I had the GI Bill in front of me, and so I took advantage of it and immediately fell in love with learning and found sociology, anthropology, philosophy, and decided to pursue graduate studies in uh, sociology with uh, Peter Berger, who's a fairly famous, or was, uh, he's passed, uh, sociologist at Rutgers. And I was living in the Midwest and came out um, to go to graduate school in uh, uh, New Brunswick. Um, and could you, talk, study- uh, could you talk about what uh, Peter Berger's, uh, you know, the name of his uh, yes, course and- or all that? The, so Berger was um, one of the exiled um, Europeans who taught at the New School. There were a whole group of them. And he, his teacher, Alfred Schultz, at the New School was supposedly a, uh, a student of Husserl's. He, was, he considered himself a social phenomenologist. And so Berger tried to apply Schultz's theories to sociology and he 
called his major work that he did that the social construction of reality. And I was very taken by that. That was that just spoke to me as like an under, a better understanding of who I was already. And I went from there, from Berger getting the PhD, and I, I, I wrote a dissertation on um, um, the later Wittgenstein, which was titled um, A Wittgensteinian Analysis of Realism and Social Science Methodology. A little... Uh, uh, if I could quickly... Too many words. I'm sorry. Um, to quickly interject for the, the audience, uh, if they're not familiar with Wittgenstein, he's typically split into two eras, Wittgenstein one and Wittgenstein two. He took a little break from philosophy and when he came back, uh, so that that is what you're referring to. Your work is primarily on Wittgenstein two. Correct, correct. It was, but it was, it's interesting because there are a lot of parallels between Wittgenstein and Nietzsche, and that's what I'm only just um, seeing in recent years um, after, I, after I'm getting to the study of Nietzsche. So I've, I, I've got to the study of Nietzsche after Wittgenstein, and now I'm seeing the many parallels between them, and which you know I'll, I'll, I'll discuss in a moment. But from that point on, I just note quickly, I won't go into too extensive um, um, intellectual biography, um, but from that point on, I got interested in Richard Rorty and studied his um, thinking for probably a, a good part of a decade and was totally obsessed by him. And he refers to Nietzsche and Wittgenstein but he was in the same. He was a. He was teaching at Princeton, the same place Walter Kaufman happened to be, who became a, a later a major influence of mine. Um, but it was interesting that um, Rorty was around the same time as Thomas Kuhn and the analytical philosophers, the changing paradigms in social science. Again, I, today I see. Uh, major parallels with Nietzschean thought, even though these thinkers themselves didn't uh, necessarily see that at the time. Um, and in the in the uh, Thomas Kuhn um, tradition of the analytics, um, I was taken by a um, interesting British uh, writer, uh, Paul uh, Aberbend, and who wrote *The End of Method*. And it was in the same. He was basically saying that there was no possibility of getting um, objective knowledge in even in the in even in the natural scientists but certainly not in the social scientists so he was he it wasn't the end of, of, of method sorry it was against method was the title of his book and he was he was basically um, thrown out of polite company among his colleagues and uh, but it, it was a very interesting movement. Uh, from that point, I went to studying uh, because, on, by the way, I didn't say, but I consider myself an autodidact, self-taught. Um, Keegan often uh, so identifies as well, which I found really yes. interesting. Um, but but I've, I taught myself all this, but I just went sort of meandering in the direction, finding new topics um that just um spoke to me seemed relevant and i and i read a lot of uh, 19th century literature european literature and um, um also uh history I've, i studied uh, um, 
Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, um, several other founding fathers at some depth. And I was starting to round out, it felt like, my understanding of things. And that's when I went back and I looked at um, the basic writings of uh, Freud. And I found them for the first time entirely um, relatable, understandable, and I just couldn't get enough of them. And I basically read um, pretty much the complete works of Freud in chronological order. And I was fascinated by that, and I was trying to get into psychoanalytic um, um, discussion groups. I was, I, was, I was finding places on Reddit to uh, do that and getting more. I was even, I was even corresponding with some uh, uh, psychoanaly psychoanalysts from around the world and um, talking to them about um, um, the uh, you know, current, current methods and everything. But I have one anecdote that's one of my favorite uh, from, from reaching out to famous people or for academics. And that is, um, the um, uh, the author of the uh, book uh, Lincoln on the Bardo, um, what's his name? Is actually his name escapes me. George uh, Kennedy. I'm probably botching that. I haven't read it, but that's an interesting title. Uh, yeah, no, about it was Lincoln going through the afterlife. I guess. Sorry, is it Lincoln in the afterlife? Because uh, Bardo just using the word Bardo from like the Tibetan tradition is like the I'm not sure actually what okay. his intention was but but anyhow he uh, I wrote to him it turned out he's a professor at Syracuse I believe and he wrote but not on that book but on a short story he wrote called uh, Fox 8 which was fascinating story about uh, a, a a group of foxes who were living in you know the woods but it was the the suburbs were encroaching regularly and, and it, it, the people came so close to the foxes that the fox overheard um, the human speech and conversations and actually learned English and the story was about um, not only the building of a shopping center that encroached upon the uh, the fox's habitat um, but that the uh, fox who learned English taught it to all of his other foxes. And it was just a fascinating take. And I, I actually wrote to him and I said, you know, that theme really reminds me of, of uh, some of the works of Friedrich Nietzsche and some of his ideas. And I sent him a bunch of, uh, of my favorite Nietzsche aphorisms. And he wrote back and he said, Oh my God, he said, uh, William Kaiser, my name, uh, he said, I have to tell you a story. When I was in high school, I uh, asked my, my English teacher, my main mentor, who was the most, the smartest person, the smartest human being of all time, and she said, Friedrich Nietzsche. And so I went immediately to try to read Nietzsche, but I couldn't really... Um, get much out of him, so I let it go. He said, but the aphorisms you just sent me from Nietzsche not only were convincing, but clear as could be, I'm going to go back to him. And so, yeah, that, I mean, it's like, it's like discoveries is what I love to see. I, and then it wasn't in, in terms of uh, uh, later, as after I studied Freud, that I, uh, I encountered Walter Kaufman's Nietzsche, 
and read pretty much everything he had to say and really loved Walter Kaufman both as a, uh, a translator but his the notes in his book are so um, explanatory and enriching that I've found I always go to notes from Walter yeah. Kaufman they're 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 priceless um, I, I think he's still the best in that regard as far as all the translators because and I, I think I've said this in the most recent Q&A but there are you know there's double meanings like uh, I remember in Thus Spoke Zarathustra there's a passage where he says you'll be a uh, both a vandal and a criminal but it's really the the term is break breaker and verbreaker which means like a break a literal breaker of things and a law breaker um, are sort of the German words Nietzsche is using there, and so there's like a little sort of uh, uh, I don't I don't know if it's a double entendre is the, maybe the wrong word, but um, there's a play on words going on there that doesn't quite come through in English. So whenever Kaufman can't render it in English, he always appends that in a footnote that shows you I don't know just a little bit behind Nietzsche's thought that would only come out in the German language. Um, and totally. then of course you know all the historical references and things of that nature too that he. Right, and, and, and the influences that Nietzsche's love, sub, you know, in literature or past philosophy and all of it is brought out a lot in his notes. I'm, I'm curious, though, I wanted to ask you, Keegan, have you um, come across um, Kaufman's last work and just before his untimely death, which um, is really interesting, too, if you haven't um, um, read about it? His last work is a trilogy called Discovering the Mind. Have you, uh, have you read any of that? No. It's amazing. It's my favorite Kaufman. So he, basi he's, he's basically is writing this trilogy from a Nietzschean critical standpoint and analyzing the work of Goethe and Hegel and Kant and Heidegger and Buber and Freud and basically um, asking the question who of these thinkers has discovered their own mind and who has and you can sort of guess you know from the standpoint of Nietzsche's neo-Kantian um, analysis that uh, uh, somebody like Kant uh, doesn't know his own mind very much at all and it turns out neither does Heidegger because Heidegger actually, um, as Kaufman puts it, he knew Heidegger, um, as Kaufman puts it, um, he was a lifelong uh, aspirant to be a uh, Protestant theologian. And so, and so religious faith, even though he, he specifically uh, claimed that it wasn't part of his Nietzschean analysis, um, was was a, a central part of Heidegger's life, and basically, um, Kaufman makes the claim that um, these these thinkers, um, these anti-knowing their own mind thinkers, are dualists. That they that they basically look at one aspect of their life as being um, totally unrelated to a, another aspect of their life, their intellectual inquiry searching for the truth. I was just listening to Keegan's uh, podcast on that, which is um, a half a dozen ago or so, um, but I was just recently listening to it again. And searching for the truth, of course, has all of these connotations of deluding yourself too. 
but in the case of the um, um, the Christians, um, that the, they're not I, they're not identifying with uh, what Kaufman was saying is they're not identifying with Nietzsche's main ideas um, because they're unable to they because they don't understand themselves. Yeah, well, and Kant Kant is a very interesting figure because, um, and I've I've always been fascinated with this aspect of Kant that he was a um, very serious hypochondriac and very depressed and melancholic for for most of his life right and he believed very strongly in he wrote an essay um in the later years of his life so it's kind of funny because it's not very good quality essay and there's this philosopher rebecca comey who said uh you know if we're going to talk about Kant's juvenilia this should be listed amongst his semelia but uh, that it's uh, it's an essay called "The Power of the Mind" on the power of the mind to suppress morbid feelings. It's something like that. It's not. I don't think I'm getting it quite quite right. But that uh, you know, he seriously believed in the will's ability to um, you know will away hypochondriacal feelings or melancholic feelings. So basically, it's like uh, if you're having a panic attack, you should just really focus your willpower on, on stopping that. And Kant believed, I mean, he had some sort of strange uh, thing that happened to his brain that he himself attributed to like willing too hard uh, to deal with his uh, morbid feelings, as he calls them, that he thinks he like gave himself a brain cramp or something. Uh, and that, and that it's become difficult for him in his old, older years to, um, you know, he says it's it's becoming more difficult for him to string thoughts together, or that um, you know he's finding his mind wander more and more. Um, I just think, I think it's interesting because it's when you called him a dualist and has wanting to separate off uh, different elements of his life. Um, it all it just reminds me. It ties back to the idea of uh, thinking of yourself as this rational governor that has a will that's effective over all of your instincts and impulses, and so that's what really you are right that's your true essence and all, that allows you to sort of cast everything else off and be like well that's just uh you know that was just like an impulse i needed to fulfill right but that um or or resist or in Kant's case resist with my will right but that's not me um and so i don't know i've always I've, i have always found that uh very interesting that Kant, and it also seems like a very that Kant's writing is not doesn't seem like the act of a depressive right um, it's very, uh, in some sense, you could say, optimistic about the powers of human reason and human willpower. Well, I think that that is shared uh, by Nietzsche because basically um, he's not willing away his uh, uh, physical um, uh, suffering. He's actually embracing it because he believes that will uh, allow him to find a period of uh, of, of inspiration and clarity because he went through the, uh, um, the the trials and tribunes that he did. And that's so that there's some parallels there, I suppose. Um, but I like I liked the, um, I forget where Nietzsche talked about it, where he talked about it, um, that the, um, the theologians after Kant were all looking in the bushes for a fact 
faculty. They wanted yes. a faculty which, which Kant used as the ability to um, see the thing in itself. And Nietzsche would nonstop mock um, that um, a concept of Kant's that this was even possible, that it was just a ruse almost. But you, the, all the theologians in, um, what was the city, Tubigen, um, yeah. were, were uh, um, going around after reading Kant, looking for a special faculty, and they were, and they were looking behind bushes and uh, in, open, in hidden right. corners. Looking in the yeah. objective world for um, the, <laughs> the proof that we have some sort of subjective faculty for perceiving the thing in itself. Totally. Um, yeah. Okay. So, well, what I want to ask you, though, um, which is interesting, sort of from implicit in kind of your story about your own intellectual development, is that there's this this uncanny resemblance between some of the ideas of Nietzsche and then figures like Wittgenstein. And I guess on some level, I wonder, like, what do you make of that? Given that Nietzsche is coming from like a completely different background, it's a different language, right? He's he's speaking the language of German idealism and of within the continental sort of the end of the continental tradition we could say and then you have people like wittgenstein and even rorty i mean it's one thing to just say well nietzsche anticipates them right but it's like in reality nietzsche didn't know they were coming and i don't know with wittgenstein for example if he actually was influenced by nietzsche um well i guess i could ask you that so what do you make of the the, the sort well, of I resemblance between them i my favorite um take from the uh, uh, similarities, parallels between the two is, is, is mostly in the psychological do domain. Both of them um, saw learning as one of the key elements in living one's life, in developing and overcoming. It was all about learning. And in Wittgenstein's case, it related to learning language, but also then learning the context of language in different language games, and then his concept of grammar, which basically encompasses the, the, uh, the total possibilities that one can use with uh, certain words, phrases, um, uh, sayings. And, and so learning of language, basically for Wittgenstein, was all about um, becoming a human being, becoming enculturated, uh, becoming uh, uh, part of your community, all of it was through the learning of language, and language constituted reality for, for Wittgenstein. But for Nietzsche, um, it was interesting because he, he, was, he started to figure out, especially in the uh, 80s, um, that his journey was um, um, about learning all through his life, that he was developing and enriching his his own conceptual tools uh, all through his life when he wasn't even necessarily expecting that to happen. Um, I, my favorite Nietzschean quote is in the um, in, in regarding learning in in, in the gay science um, on learning to love a song. And um, are you familiar with that one? Um, Keegan, I think you might have—you uh, might be the first guest who's brought up an aphorism that I don't know off the top of my head. So you win some sort of prize for that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, the basically he said is um, the way we learn to love a song 
is by first hearing it once and finding it interesting, hearing it another time and finding more parts of it that sort of connect, that we identify, Her, hearing it you know, a couple of more times and basically identifying parts of it that um, we love, that we really, uh, that, that, that speak to us, that affect us. And then finally, um, saying that, um, thinking that um, we can't live without it. Um, we're basically, it's, it's part of us now. And so th that's interesting, but what's more interesting is he says, that's the way we learn to love everything including ourselves mm. and i i always found that to be just captivating um in terms of that i i actually there was a there was a musicologist um, who wrote an op-ed in the new york times that was looking at the dynamics of like the the origin of melody and 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 things like that and i emailed him and s sent him that aphorism from nietzsche um, and ask him if, um, if, if that resonated with him. And he wrote me back and he said, I've never seen anything like this. This is amazing, I'm, but I have to think about it. But it's like learning to, to, learning to love, learning, to, learning everything is life, basically, for Nietzsche. And he came to that conclusion and codified it, I think, in his later writings. Yeah, well, and it, but what's interesting, so it's interesting you brought up man there's so many directions to go from that i mean for one on the uh just on the learning angle and that that's how we learn everything uh it sort of reminds me maybe it's like me another way of phrasing what nietzsche is saying there about uh how you master any talent right is that you begin in uh, unconscious incompetence you move to conscious incompetence then you go to uh conscious mastery and then the final step is unconscious mastery right where uh but what that really means is that you see through all of the superficial things that first strike you about for example a song or um when you're learning something like uh, i'll relate it to playing music because that's something i know about you know uh, when you first want to learn to play music uh, it's very funny some of the things people will bring into a vocal coach and say i want to learn to sing like this person or I want to learn to play guitar like this, uh, you know, like Yngwie Malmsteen or somebody who can really play the guitar. Um, what you then learn once you actually like learn the instrument is like uh, many of the things that you might have thought should seem easy are actually very difficult and vice versa. Many of the things that you might have thought were very difficult are actually easy. But then over time, it's like it becomes what struck me about that when I talk about it becoming a talent becoming unconscious or something you learn becoming unconscious I think to some extent that can be what he's talking about where it becomes a part of you and you can't imagine any it any way otherwise and so and that's where that's where I'm at now with uh, music for example it's like I don't think about uh, I don't have to think about the scale when I'm playing it right <laughs> but it's uh, because it's now it's just me it's in me, and uh, I don't have to think about it. So I, I think I think that's right. That the um, um, the the I I sort of wanted to be a musician myself. I love music um, when I was a kid, but um, I didn't get the resources from my parents to uh, get piano lessons or guitar lessons. Um, 
uh, my other siblings did. So I never learned an instrument, so I never became a recording, a, a, a musician. But I, I think that's right. I think there's like a semi-automatic aspect of uh, artistry as a, a musician um, and that you you basically it just becomes second nature after a while you you master it um, and and I think that is what um, Nietzsche is talking about in learning to love and learning to love anything um, is that it, it it it's it's just a part of us it just becomes who we are and as I get older um, that becomes more and more evident and so you know, therefore, you basically uh, approach life like it being an adventure that every uh, uh, there's there's something new around every corner, um, potentially, and you only have to um, learn to take advantage of it and get better at it. And so I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of living that in my life is in my personality. But the other thing is that I should mention, because it's an interesting biographical um, component, is I have um, two um, parents who are, uh, uh, my father died uh, a year ago, just shy of 102, and my mother's about to turn 101 in uh, September, and she's amazing. Her memory is uh, clear. She's in an assisted living uh, facility, so she has help. But I mean, you know, you know, you, I say to myself, wow, I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but I should really live my life like there's a possibility that I could uh, live that long. And it's a it's a real uh, inspiration for me. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I <laughs> I, I I often fear uh that I will not make it to that age just based on my family history. <laughs> but um, We'll see. We'll see. But so I, since we're talking about learning, though, there's sort of the other side of that coin, right, is forgetting. And what's interesting about Wittgenstein and Nietzsche is they both seem to appeal to forgetting as a very, what would you say, powerful or significant force in human cognition. But well, in, in with Wittgenstein's case, it's from my understanding of philosophical investigations, that's like a central part of um, the way he, one of the big insights he makes about language, which has to do with why there can't be a uh, private language. It also has to do with uh, what is what is it? The um, the sensation S that one writes down every time they experience it. Um, you know, Wittgenstein makes the point, let's say that you have a certain sensation that the you give a, a word for it or a symbol in this case S and you record it every time you experience it. And, uh, you know, you do this for one day, two days. And then, then on the third day you have a sensation, but you're not quite sure if you remember whether it's the same sensation well, as the first two S's. Um, and so this is interesting to me because it's, it's, it's similar to what Nietzsche is talking about in way back in that essay on truth and lies in a non-moral sense where he basically says that we have concept formation that comes out of like an intense emotive experience, right? Um, and we create a symbol to denote that. But then over time, he says that uh, it becomes discharged of all emotive power, like uh, coins that have sort of been uh, worn down and are just uh, metal now, the engraving is gone, right? Um, and so both of them sort of came to the same conclusion that, um, 
the way the concept is formed, like the subjective experience is really not what language eventually becomes. Um, I don't know, maybe you could uh, elaborate on that or give your thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite um, expert on that point. I'm, I'm not, I, I, I sort of looked at um, um, both Nietzsche and Wittgenstein's um, view of forgetting um, more in line with um, um, a, a repressive technique, like a, a psychoanalytic um, tool um, to um, deal with life. Um, and, and that's, that's what I've found interesting, um, you know, about uh, forgetting and the conversation about forgetting. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that um, Wittgenstein's philosophical investigation, which, which he didn't publish, uh, was posthumously uh, published, um, in, contained writings from 1936 to 1949. Um, so it was a whole it was a whole decade of uh, of where he was at at the time, and the later Wittgenstein um, pretty much repudiated everything about his earlier um, famous genius book um, on the, the Tractatus. Um, he he pretty much. Uh, he, he didn't think that he was completely wrong in the Tractatus, but what he thought was um, the people who were reading it, like Bertrand Russell and Frege and, and some others who were praising him on it, they didn't get it. They didn't understand his work. And he basically left, left academia and went to teach in the rural uh, hinterlands um, to get his mind straight and only came back to uh, academia in Cambridge um, when he was 40. And, and it, 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 but what I want, the point I wanted to make is the, the very last work that was published, that he, the very last things he wrote about was in a volume called On Certainty. And that actually brings out a lot of the points of how you achieve um, uh, argument, convincing, um, justification, um, and and th that actually gets to a lot of the topics that Nietzsche covered in his lifetime that are that are parallel, and that's one that I would recommend to people to look at because it's uh, it, it's fairly straightforward, and it's uh, if you're if you're a Nietzsche um, fan, and I'm assuming that most of the listeners to this show are. Um, uncertainty has a lot of um, interesting parallels yeah i don't know if we have a big enough audience yet to have people who like hate listen because they hate nietzsche but i hope that one day we will get there um but i will say yeah um on uh, uncertainty well so isn't it's a my my understanding of wittgenstein i'm always kind of second guessing myself because um especially with with early Wittgenstein, um, I must confess to not comprehending the Tractatus really much at all. I have a, a close friend, uh, Kevin Rogers, he's been on the show. He, he calls, uh, he's very much into Zen, and he calls the Tractatus a, like a logical koan. Um, it's, you know, a, a Zen koan of this logical association. And there's definitely parts and like, you could call them aphorisms in the Tractatus, that I um, I, I can I can glean what what he's getting at there. Just the totality of the documents always eluded me. Wittgenstein, later Wittgenstein, I 
feel a lot more um, intellectual uh, kinship with or, or ability to get to to understand him. But I'm still, uh, you know, uh, in, in any case. So, so my understanding of sort of one of his main principles is that you can't uh, if there's something that you can't doubt. Right. Like I can't doubt that I'm in pain. You also can't really say that you know it or that you, you know it to any degree of certainty, because if it's beyond doubt, then it's also beyond falsification. And uh, that, to me, strikes me as an area where he he would find agreement with Nietzsche that uh, because I think where Nietzsche would say the things that we find to be beyond doubt are those subjective experiences of pain, uh, pleasure, a drive and a feeling. Right. And right. so. Right. Right. Those things are sort of beyond the truth, uh, the truth-seeking scrutiny, I guess. Right, and there weren't many of them. I think those were called uh, Moore's um, certainties, or something that that um, the the British philosopher, uh, um, uh, what was his first name, uh, Moore. Um, who Moore? I remember the initials. Yeah, not the name. Yes, yes. No, that's 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 the one. Um, the guy who had two hands. <laughs> but but the interesting thing also this was the era era um, when Wittgenstein was writing this that um, that that British uh, logical positivism was like uh, bursting and so Karl Popper was talking about falsifiability and 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 that's how you get at the truth right it's like it's like that they were looking and this is what i wrote about in my dissertation they were looking at the as re, at reality as something that could be progressively expanded upon and uncovered and all you had to do was to test your hypothesis and if you couldn't prove yourself uh, to be incorrect, then you move on from there and you do continued studies. But they were saying at that point, to your point, um, we can never we can never know um, the absolute truth. We can only know um, the errors that we make in getting to that point. And it was so interesting because how was it one one of the secondary sources is on uh, on Wittgenstein uh, referred to and I don't know if this is original Wittgenstein or one of his uh, um, followers but that uh, the the world getting to the uh, knowledge of the world epistemology um, is like a fly in a fly bottle and the fly finding itself out of the fly bottle but basically with the assumption um, that that's doable that the fly will eventually um, get out um, and I think I, I think Wittgenstein um, basically uh, suggested that uh, there's no possible there's no uh, absolute knowledge that the fly ever will escape and and it was it was an interesting metaphor that he used but the yeah. conception of knowledge that they were going for was a linear unitary type of progressive accumulation of scholarship and that you would just get a deeper and deeper understanding um, of a phenomenon of man if you will um, if you just keep going but that's not how Nietzsche thought at all he thought that his method was um, maybe uncovering some um, deeper truths, but um, you know, even in that endeavor, 
um, which he discovered they're like, himself. They're like psychological truths. Psychological truths. Yeah. yeah. And and it, it was like it, it was like he. I don't think. I mean, he he remember remember that Nietzsche was um, what was especially interesting is that um, he didn't think many people understood what he was saying while he was alive, and he was probably right. Um, but right. that that didn't stop him from uh, uh, continuing on. In fact, he said of himself, um, "I'm a posthumist thinker writer." Yeah. Um, since you brought up uh, Popper earlier, I mean, uh, the, I mean, obviously there's that famous exchange between Wittgenstein and Popper, and I guess I would ask on, uh, I mean, it's famous because people say that that Wittgenstein like brandished a, a hot poker at uh, Karl Popper during like a, a brief ten minute argument, the only time they ever met. Right. But what's interesting to me is the the topic. You know, are there genuine philosophical problems? Popper believes that there are. It's not all just uh, confusions of language or linguistic puzzles. Uh, Wittgenstein says no. So I guess I would just ask you, where do you come down on that? Are there genuine philosophical problems? I mean, I, you, you know, listening to your podcast is, is interesting. I, you know, I want to couch it in that because um, you bring out some of the Socratics and, and other influences and, and all of that. Um, most of those thinkers um, believe in genuine philosophical problems, but that's that. That I don't. I, my reading of Nietzsche is that there aren't. That, that it's it's historic. It's historically uh, perspectival. Um, what with the era you're in, what came before you, as to what you were. Um, main priorities and problems are, and so no, I don't. I don't personally believe there are genuine philosophical problems, at least not um, ahistorical ones. That's uh, that's where I kind of would expect you to, to 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 answer, given the influence. Like when you when you combine Nietzsche, Rorty, and Wittgenstein, you have a pretty brutal trifecta for. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily call it skepticism per se, but sort of like a critical look at philosophy, right? And I think the pragmatist uh, streak that Rorty comes out of, or that that um, that movement, maybe maybe that's what uh, what would I say? Uh, that's I think lends credence to the idea. Um, yeah, I think you can interpret Nietzsche through that lens that he he would say there are not really philosophical problems um really what it is is uh you have in reality practical problems right right and then uh you get philosophical about it when you can't solve them in the world um you know and and so that's that's how i tend to look at nietzsche is um it's actually rather it's well it's delusian in one sense and very anti-delusian in another that I, I really hone in on that that dichotomy between Dionysus and Christ of the physical good versus the intellectual or spiritual good, right? And right. so I I think there's a good argument to be made that Nietzsche is on the side that all of that philosophy, all that mind stuff that you're doing, uh, is it's something you're only doing because you're not out there acting in the world, right, so to speak. But then on the other hand, I do think. 
maybe maybe where I might push back on the idea that that Nietzsche would say there's no philosophical problems. Maybe there are like existential problems. Maybe this is sort of the the I think maybe where Nietzsche might be in a more gray area is like the overlap between philosophy and psychology. Like you might have created problems for yourself like in your own psych psychology, um, and you might need philosophy to find your way out of that maze. Like, does that make sense, or would you? you find yeah, I think I, I think so. And I think I think basically, um, you're from a Nietzschean standpoint, you're talking about um, overcoming uh, bias and prejudices and realizing where bias and prejudices are, and the beyond good and evil analysis is a good example of that. But it goes much further than that in terms of, uh, I actually have a project that I'm working on. I haven't published anything yet, but I've been working on it for about 10 years. And I couch it in the, uh, in the title of Critique of Common Sense Realism. And, and, and Common Sense Realism I define as basically, there's a couple of examples of that that, that sort of uh, bring it, uh, um, make it clearer. Um, one is that we go by the presumption in our everyday life um, that other people are experiencing the same reality as we are, and that's how they can talk. That's how we can talk about them. But in fact, that's far from the truth, and people are experiencing reality in very different ways. And an analysis of a deeper analysis of that is necessary to get at a deeper human interactions, relations, and understanding. And the second, the second component of uh, a critique of common sense realism. Is um, is even more radical than that, and it's uh, basically a, a a sheer ahistorical outlook where people are not realizing that they're changing from day to day, month to month, year to year, decade to decade, when they very much are, and the lack of recognition for that historic um, um, appreciation um, is keeping people also from um, engaged in a uh, a deeper a conversational, um, analytical um, development. Does well, it's strange. That... Yeah, it's strange because we have. I would say I agree with both of those those sort of uh, suppositions that that those are sort of the standard mind frame that we inhabit. Um, on the other hand, we have like sayings in our language, right, where you know i was a different person back then right that people will say that i think there is some intuitive understanding and when i look at my life i think about you know who i was at 18 i'm not that person at all right i feel like that that is like an entirely different human being in some sense and i think most people probably feel that way um you know we could get into all the the stuff people like to bring up about your dna or your, all your cells completely changing over within seven years or whatever but um I think there is a more fundamental um, there's a more fundamental aspect that has to do with the sort of uh, the incons the inherent inconsistency of our our mind states and and uh, who, who we are consciously right that yeah I would I would mostly agree with that I just I guess I don't know if I have a question there it's more just that I, I think in some ways we have a language to talk about it and then in other ways we try to obscure it. 
Well, I think I think the um, for me the interesting thing about it is um, yes, people recognize it in that sense. Um, I was very different, um, you know, ten years ago, or I'm a better person today because of uh, what I've gone through, sort of thing. But they forget about we forget about it in general, and it's it's incredibly important because you know all of the politics that's going on in the world right now is is much better understood by putting it in a historical perspective and even putting ourselves in a historical perspective as going through changes i mean it's it's like um i think it's important to be able to see you know where we were where we as a country we as a, as a society we as a person um, where we were 10 years ago, 50 years ago in my case, uh, compared to where we are now. And, and, and it's, I think Nietzsche teaches us um, that that uh, can be very um, therapeutic in our lives to, to recognize that. Right, to recognize I'm a, we're always sort of shifting and becoming, well, and it's very easy to do it for yourself. And it's, uh, people usually find it harder to do it with others, right? <laughs> you, you can, uh, remember, uh, a slight against you, you know, from somebody 10 years ago, are, are, are most people going to apply that same standard to the other person? Well, he's a different person now, generally not because, uh, we tend to judge ourselves by our own inner life and we judge other people by their, their actions, their behaviors. Um, and so, you know, most people are um, are caught in the same patterns and ruts, right? And they actually, um, it's it's a very, I mean, okay, here's a question. Are people predictable or not? I, I, I know that's sort of uh, very vague in general, but it, it's something that I'm thinking well, about. Well, no, well I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, what the social sciences are based upon. And so it's a, it's a legitimate question. Um, you know, it, it's like, um, that's that's as as uh, as Walter Kaufman would say. Um, that's too manicheing. To uh, um, it's it's more like somewhere in between. They are they're sort so, somewhat predictable, but they're always uh, surprising us too, as we are with ourselves. And that's sort of the point that I'm I'm getting at is that we are constantly um, overcoming if we if we work. The right way but we're we're constantly changing and so the recognition of that is sort of important to have an ethical um style of, of life i would i would think um because if you're just because because remember that the uh the pessimism that's um everywhere in the political right is based upon um self um, doubt, insecurity, and um, sort of blame, right? I mean, there, the way the the way the right wing political actors are recruited by the right wing leaders is um, through um, basically telling that the leader telling the followers um, that I understand what you're going through, and we shouldn't have to take it this is the end of our being uh, treated this way it's always on it's always based on victimhood um and so you you have a harder time um feeling the victim if you basically see yourself as constantly changing and the society around you is constantly changing 
Right. Well, and it, it is really amazing to hear um, hear the right wing often talk about like victimhood culture when, as you say, like when you look at their the entirety of their politics is like grievance based, uh, which is uh, somewhat amusing. The the lack of uh, lack of self awareness there, but yeah, it's like the. Uh, I believe I brought it up with the uh, the T.S. Eliot poem not too long ago, um, uh, Four Quartets, that it's like the time uh, time heals no wounds, basically. <laughs> the person who gets on right. the uh, train car in the morning is not the same person who arrives, which is a very extreme way of, uh, of saying it. But, um, you know, because it, is it really is it really that atomistic? Are we really in from moment to moment? not the same person with the same coherent identity and i'm i'm actually a little bit in the middle on that because um i think there is something to the argument that uh, was it hume i'm 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 it escapes me at the moment the argument that are the con there is some continuity of of mind and memory right that sort of uh binds us right. to one identity and then at the same time, though, uh, what sort of constitutes that the basis of those uh, the, that mind and those memories is this sort of shifting mass of all of these different like sub personalities and drives and things we aren't even aware of. And also, as I've gotten older, um, I mean, you know, I'm 33 now, um, the and especially what you know, after years of doing what I've done with the band, um, you know, it, it, it's become very clear to me that memory is not this uh, stable, uh, consistent thing either. So even that is sort of shaky ground. And I, I'm, I'm just sort of to speak from experience, you know, I've had the experience now many times where I'm standing around with my bandmates and we remember something that happened in 2015 and we all start trying to tell the story and then all of a sudden there's disagreements about what exactly happened. Well, no, wait, I was driving or no, that was in a completely different place. And uh, you realize it's that we actually do have different memories that have changed over the years, that the future has altered our perception of the past. And so it's very strange, but it means it means there's not I don't really even have any strong faith in the coherence of memory. Um, but, you know, I, I don't it's know. Sort of, on the other hand, it's, sorry, go on. No, it sort of reminds me of uh, one of my uh, favorite Nietzsche quotes, and which is as if to, I'm quoting it. So, um, um, I, my experience says I did this. Um, my pride tells me I couldn't have. Um, my. Um, um, my uh, memory yields to my pride, and soon I believe that I, I believe my pride that I couldn't have done it. So, right. Something like that. I didn't say it as well as he did, but um, um, it's a it's a rather amazing uh, quote because it's it's psychoanalytic to the core, right? It's it's like we're able to use uh, defense mechanisms, or we do use defense mechanisms to give a, a, a better rendition of who we are to ourselves. And so the, the recognition that we use those defense mechanisms, um, including for ourselves, is, is basically the process of psychoanalysis. Um, and, and, that's, and that's really interesting too. And the whole Nietzsche-Freud uh, connection. Um, can, I, can I just say something about that, if, uh, if you don't sure. mind? Yeah. So 
Are you are you familiar with um, Freud's um, quotes about Nietzsche? Um, he basically Freud, for those of you who don't know, um, was uh, was very influenced by Nietzsche, um, but did not want to give him credit, but mostly because. Uh, he wanted to be seen as scientific. He wanted, it was a very positivistic time, uh, having scientific legitimacy for his psychoanalysis was, you know, one of his uh, most important, um, uh, you know, aspects of his thought work. And he said of Nietzsche at a, I think it was a 1908 psychoanalytic meeting, they met in uh, Vienna, uh, he said, there was never a human being alive who knew his mind as well as Nietzsche, and there probably never will be. Uh, yeah, well, well, Nietzsche, well, okay, so when Freud's first writing too, like you say, he has a positivistic, uh, it's a positivist time. And also Nietzsche at that time, I think was very widely misunderstood as like an irrationalist, that he basically That's true. doesn't believe That's in true. reason at all. And so it's like a really bad look, basically, right, to be, taking ideas from Nietzsche. But I think I think the link between the two is un, undeniable. I mean, as you say, and as you quote, um, yeah, what I've read, I've mostly read Freud's work on dreams um, because I got very interested in reading about dreams, but I've read a lot of the highlights of sort of where Nietzsche and Freud intersect, you would say. Um, and I think, I mean, on some level, Freud is basically just, I mean, he gets tarred as like the, the, the psychoanalyst who's just obsessed with sex, which is very central. But um, I think part of that is him trying to find, he's doing a similar project as Nietzsche, right? He's trying to find a monistic principle like Nietzsche is doing will to power. Yes. Uh, Freud is, is, is maybe trying to take that in a more scientifically based direction. At that point, uh, Darwinist evolution has completely, you know, displaced anything like Lamarckianism where Nietzsche might have been more into and uh, it's all about you know survival of the fittest reproduction is the name of the game right. and so the sexual impulse it makes more sense to make that central than this will to power thing which is maybe a little bit more too metaphysical right uh, and but on the on the other hand it's it's the whole idea of the sublimation and the idea of having the it, unconscious motivations which are constrained by society and then forced into a new channel um by the reality of uh the force that society can bring to bear against you right. i think that's all straight from nietzsche um and it's it's like a practical application of his uh of his ideas in the psychoanalytic field i agree I agree. I have you. Um, one of the things in Freud that I really, um, really was affected by that, that uh, influenced me um, was um, his last book um, called "The Man Moses and Monotheism." Are you familiar with that um, book? I am not. That sounds more like the title of a Carl Jung book than a, than a Freud book. <laughs> no, no, this was Freud's. This was Freud's last work, and it's really yeah, yeah. interesting. And I don't think we have time to, for me to go into it, except to say um, that it was he. He was dying of uh, mouth cancer. Freud was at the time he was writing this, and he was intent on publishing it so much so 
that he published the English version of it, I think within less than a month of the German coming out. And he was getting pushed back. He was, he was famous at that time. He was friends of several royalty around the world. Um, and he was getting pushed back from the most famous um, rabbis and people of, around the world in the Jewish community not to publish the book. They did not want it. And he said basically on his deathbed that this was the mo most important thing he's ever written. And so he's, he's, he's definitely going forward with it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so is it very... I so, very so well, there's a couple of, or critical of religion. Yeah, no, there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of uh, uh, main points. The uh, the most controversial one, the one that accounts for the uh, Jewish community pushing back, is that Moses, who was living presumably in about 15 BC, 1500 BC, um, was um, uh, actually uh, was a um, an Egyptian king, and he was an Egyptian king who basically was uh, came from a, um, a, a, a Egyptian dynasty. They were they were polytheists. They had many gods, and there was one Egyptian leader who um, basically decided he wanted only one god, and he changed the whole society signage, everything, and the uh, symbols, everything was changed to the monotheistic uh, way. And Moses was part of that time. And then after that, they was that uh, Akhenaten? Yes, yes. And then after that, they went back to many gods um, for a, a, a long time. Um, but but that was but the fact that uh, Moses was actually an Egyptian, um, was uh, was not um, palatable to the Jewish community. And he was making this point in, in sort of a way that it couldn't really be refuted. And it was a, it's a really persuasive and interesting argument that uh, Freud makes. Yeah, other, that, that, oh, sorry, go on. No, I was just saying the other, the other main thing that he talks about, which is um, especially interesting to me, um, is he's talking about, um, basically the, the the makeup of culture what culture means and what it means in these different eras and how it can be made sense of and i can't really go into more of it because it's pretty complex but it's it's fascinating to um, to listen to uh, to read freud about this sort of thing and uh i i just i there's a modern translation of this book that I picked up that unfortunately I don't have at the tip of my tongue, um, but the commentary of the translation um, is excellent and it's really helpful to reading the book if you're if you're so moved. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll put that in the uh, in the show notes to so people can track it down because that sounds really really fascinating. Well, and yeah, you mentioned uh, you know Freud sort of exploring. The basis of like uh, what what culture is that's that's sort of been the topic of the past uh, slew of episodes dealing with uh, Wagner as of now and we're recording this as as what the podcast has been focused on. Um, that's been sort of one of the main elements. Um, my understanding of to maybe bring it back to like Wittgenstein, um, would you, would you say that uh, is is a language a culture in and of itself or? Does that presuppose the existence of a culture? How do, 
what how do we understand the relationship? You no, know, they're probably they're they're the way that these different thinkers are talking about it, um, they're pretty much the same because it's it's like language is the constituent part of culture from you know Wittgenstein's standpoint, but without language, there is no culture. So it's 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 like uh, it comes first and you really from Wittgenstein's type of analysis, you really don't spend too much time on talking about culture. You just talk about language applications within culture and how that how the dynamics of that uh, play out. Right. It seems like from the Wittgensteinian point of view, um, or maybe this is like almost like a bad stereotype. <laughs> you can you can bring everything back to to language because if you the more you get sidetracked with if you start talking about culture right and then you make it more abstract and you make it I mean what is the famous uh, this is going back to Wittgenstein one but uh, that of that which can be said can be said clearly and that of which we cannot speak we must remain silent right and so it's almost like by bringing in something like too abstract or that maybe has too much connotative baggage attached to it, right. um, you're like wading into dangerous territory. And so it seems like his prescription, or if there is any kind of Wittgensteinian prescription would be always bring it back to language because then you can make, it's like a later Wittgenstein idea that all of the, all of the information, all the meaning is right there in the, in, in the language. And once you clarify that, it will, um, I think I think that I think that's right. And by the way, if any listeners are interested in learning about Wittgenstein, um, one of my favorite sources was um, the uh, the author H. L. Finch, F. I. F. I. N. C. H. Um, his he does a, a volume on the later Wittgenstein and the early Wittgenstein that I think are excellent and are highly recommended. So something uh, Nietzsche says in uh, Beyond Good and Evil, um, this is in chapter two, it's aphorism 27. I'll just, uh, I'll read a brief quote here. He says, quote, it is difficult to be understood, especially when one thinks and lives Gengastrotogati, footnote, like the river Ganges, among those who only think and live otherwise, namely Kermagati, footnote, like the tortoise, or at best, frog-like, mande kagati, footnote, like the frog. I do everything to be difficult to understand myself, end quote. Oh, and uh, in the footnotes here, we have, uh, you know, you could say that moving like the river Ganges is like presto, like the tortoise is like lento, and then like the frog, you could say staccato. So if anyone's familiar musically with those uh, sort of tempo notations, um, and there's another passage further down, I believe in that same section where Nietzsche is talking about, for example, he's like, how could a German understand Machiavelli who takes us with a brisk, uh, you know, we can we can taste the dry air of Florence as he thinks with this brisk Italian allegrissimo, you know, um, this uh, sort of uh, um, vigorous speed, right? Um, and whereas the Germans are thinking like these slow, like sort of blockheads, right? And this passage has always fascinated me because he's not necessarily talking about different languages, um, but just like the pace and tempo of thought that maybe is like a, a constituent part of language at, uh, in some sense, right? Because German, of course, has these long sentences with these big compound words, Um you know, whereas like Italian is very musical and can kind of flow off the tongue and how this affects the way uh, that 
we even think. And then it was sort of the comment you made earlier that, well, not a lot of people really understood Nietzsche when he was writing. And it seems like Nietzsche's own explanation for that is, I'm surrounded by people who just don't think at the same speed. They don't think at the at the same, um, they're not on the same vibe or the same wavelength that I'm on, right? Right. Tempo was a big thing for him. Actually, he said something, I just read it um, in Beyond Good and Evil um, yesterday, I think, where he said the, the reason that um, men and women uh, can't understand one another is that they have different tempos. And I thought that to be interesting as well, because it sort of gets to the point of the cultural and contextual differences of, of being able to understand somebody. Um, but it's, it's probably also true among lots of different groups in society and me, even, even members of our own family are missing, missing points about us or we about them um, simply because of different experience, different tempos, different outlooks. Well, it's interesting to me because it almost speaks to something about the way we communicate that almost takes us beyond language in some sense, right? Because um, just the written sentence itself doesn't convey the music or the tone of voice or the, right. uh, the facial expressions or hand gestures or any number of things that we generally find indispensable for knowing what people mean and where you know by emphasizing a syllable incorrectly or, or i mean there's that fa i'm sure you're familiar with it like that there you could take a sentence and then like with uh, five or six words and emphasize a different word every time and uh, e each mean the meaning changes dramatically right like uh i'm i'm not going to that with you versus i'm not going to that with you right you know um and so I, I think on some level that's what he's talking about is this uh, it, it's it's the well what would you call that exactly I mean it's it's because it's not linguistic meaning it's not it's not something logically you're conveying well, it, 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 reminds, it reminds me of something else Wittgenstein talked about a lot which was um, facial expressions and I he had a name for it physiognometry something um, I don't recall the exact term. But it's, it's reading people's facial expressions is a major part of communication. And it's something that we sort of don't appreciate, take for granted um, way more than we should. And that comes from, and this is where I think Nietzsche got it, um, the, Goethe, the Goethe influence um, in the early 19th century um, actually went into that nature, um, imp the priority of nature, the priority of human human beings, their facial expressions, and actually reached a a, a point of uh, an example of expression in uh, Dostoevsky's *The Idiot*. The idiot was um, the uh, the uh, uh, poor poor count who was meeting with his cousins or something, and they were wondering about the trustworthiness of somebody else in the household. And he, the count said, um, I can tell he's lying just by looking at his face. And, and they said to him, 
the, the women, how can you do that? I can't tell one way or the other. And so it was this ability to read people's faces and to read nature and to pay attention to things, which I think came out of Goethe because, and, and Nietzsche certainly picked up on that, uh, because it was, a, uh, it was a tendency that also was uh, evident in um, some of Dickens' work and some other um, 19th century literature, but these were people um, who, who um, uh, these were writers, thinkers, artists, who were uh, basically not that influenced by Kant and much more uh, influenced by uh, Goethe and his, his ongoings. And that's why when I found Nietzsche, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, this is home. This is, he's, he's encapsulating everything that I've been interested in learning and he's done it so much better than the rest of these thinkers. Yeah, Nietzsche. Well, and he. Well, so maybe we'll 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 sort of uh, start wrapping up maybe on that topic of. Uh, sure. Maybe what uh, what is it that's so? Somebody asked this question on on the subreddit the other day. They're like, "Why are just so many people still um, into Nietzsche? I don't get him at all." And there are those people who don't understand him at all. I mean, you know, more power to them. Go find uh, some of this, something. Enjoy, read things you enjoy to read. Don't feel like you have to enjoy reading something. But for those of us who do love Nietzsche, I mean, you almost get a different answer from everybody, right? But what was it that really? What is it that makes you feel that, that kinship with him? You think that sense uh, of I'm home? I think it's very simple. I think his um, uh, radical secularism um, speaks to me uh, better than almost any thinker that I've ever read, and that also is probably the reason that he is so relevant in contemporary times. We've probably never been more secular in this country than we've ever been, even with the counterfactual uh, evidence of uh, the evangelicals and, 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 and that sort of influences. I, I could speak on that, but I think I think they've been uh, influenced by secularism um, almost as radically as, uh, as as a lot of a lot of us have, and they're not willing to uh, admit it. They're having a hard time, I think, um, um, embracing their um, belief. Right. Well, and I've heard it said by like some you know traditional catholics almost like kind of scornfully they're like even the catholic church is protestant now right uh right. as in there is this sense of having to, you, we're all now living in a more cosmopolitan world and it's more uh, or pluralistic would be a better uh, better term right i mean because that's really the the result of secularism is pluralism um and yeah it's it, it Nietzsche is, I, I would hold that the evangelicals and people of that that nature, uh, as as powerful as they seem at times, and I mean, it's it's a strange time to talk about this because uh, we're recording this on May fourth. There's just been a leaked uh, draft of a Supreme Court decision that uh, I'm sure is going to energize the evangelicals and the people who oppose them to a level in American politics that I had almost kind of forgotten about. I mean, evangelicals have always been around, but that was like a much bigger thing during the Bush years. And they'd kind of uh, been in the background during the Trump years. And it, I have a feeling we're about to see a lot more of them. But even as we do, I think they are in the decline. I, I do believe Nietzsche was 
um, correct about the the death of God in in terms of the fact that that old image of God, yes, you might have some some ups and downs and how how people how many people believe and and how successful it is, but I think overall it's on the decline, and he, his work is as relevant as ever for people who are suddenly finding themselves like dropped into a pluralistic uh, secular world, right, where uh, you whether you become religious or not in this time it's it's a very strange time in that people can actually choose their own religion now people can construct their own religion uh out of all the beliefs uh, uh, that they've ever encountered they can construct their own philosophy with more access to ideas than ever before and 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 that sounds great but it's it is very scary in some way and i think nietzsche helps people i, I could say I, I identify with him on that level of you know that feeling of almost if you've ever been on a very high mountain, and I have, uh, and you step right up to the edge, that right. sense of vertigo and almost nausea, it's a great metaphor that Nietzsche uses that is from his life and from his, his hikes in Switzerland uh, for describing the sort of sense of uh, being overwhelmed at, at where, where we're at today, right? That we all feel like that, that we're standing up on the mountaintop surveying all of history now. Um, Yes. So endless opportunity, endless danger. <laughs> right, right. Um, and and uh, speaking of which, um, one of the things you and I have talked about um, in the past is uh, um, traveling to Switzerland in uh, in Nietzsche's footsteps. And I've gone to uh, Sils Maria three times in the last uh, three years uh, before the pandemic. Oh, that's incredible. And it's just an incredible place. So highly recommended because you can walk the very path pathways that Nietzsche walked, you know, like eight hours a day to do his thinking. Yeah, well, and I, I, I had the, it was very strange that things worked out this way, but I visited Switzerland for the first time, two times in 2019, again, fortuitously before the pandemic. And I was just amazed. Uh, I mean, I could see why anyone would say, oh, wow, this is a fairy tale, like <laughs> dreamland of a place. And then, uh, uh, but I haven't been to Sils Maria. I haven't been to Nietzsche's room in, in Basel um, right. at, at the university there. So I've walked in, and, and then in Turin where he lived. So I, I've walked in the streets, the city streets where Nietzsche liked to walk. Um, and I've been to Genoa, actually, which uh, that is a, a city that he talks a lot about around the gay science period when he's writing that. Um, and so I've seen a lot of the city areas that Nietzsche saw, but I, I, I do want to make it over to the Engadin region and, and, and hike where Nietzsche hiked. That sounds quite incredible. Did, did you um, did you visit uh, Wagner's house? I know you referred to uh, the one that Nietzsche visited. Uh, I forget the name of it. Um, you know it. Um, the uh, that Nietzsche had his in, own intrusion. Yeah, intrusion casino. I, I think you mentioned that. Yeah. So that's that's a really interesting place too, and um, um, I went there as I as I, I mentioned to you and visited and I asked about whether anybody uh, um, is I would can I see Nietzsche's room I asked and they said no because it's on the second floor and that's closed, and I said I'm just curious has anybody asked uh, do people ask frequently about Nietzsche's room, and the 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 person that was uh, running it the staff said to me. Um, you know, I think you're the first one. So I found that to be very revealing in terms of uh, who visits who visits uh, Wagner's house. Right, right, right. 
Yeah, that's oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that because it's not it's probably not just a pilgrimage site for for Nietzscheans, but also Wagnerians. Um, yeah, uh, well, that's interesting. So but I think so I think, though, that as you as you say, Nietzsche is getting more popular. And I think in the coming years, strangely enough, I think some of his prophecies are going to increasingly come true that, you know, whole university uh, departments will be uh Chair, there will be chairs to for departments of uh, solely about explaining Nietzsche's ideas. Maybe it won't go quite that far, but in some ways it already has. Um, I mean, so with the, the coming popularity of Nietzsche, maybe this will be a, a sort of final question to end on. Do you do you see that as a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I've I've asked this before to other other people, but I think it's a particularly interesting question to ask Nietzscheans, right? <laughs> because. I, I, yeah, I'm hopeful that it's a good thing, actually. Um, you know, we've seen Nietzsche's influence used in uh, darker ways in, uh, in, in, in the Nazi period, for example, and things like that. But I think uh, most of the, uh, the lies, prejudices, and, uh, you know, just out, outright falsehoods about Nietzsche have been probably more effectively uh, discredited now. And so I think there's a less likely that Nietzsche's ideas will be used in that kind of way. But no, I'm, I'm actually very hopeful that uh, they will be for the uh, good. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope people there's something so hopeful and uh, I don't know, even maybe the word for it, um, like being in love with life that uh, I, I didn't really get until I read Nietzsche. And so I hope I more people get to have that feeling. Well, William, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, do you have any plugs or anything you want to talk about or, or give a shout out to at the end uh, uh, or any books you would recommend or really anything? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Keegan. It's been a real pleasure. Um, the only thing that I would uh, recommend, because even though it's sort of a plebeian, uh, um, it, sort of an unexpected recommendation, is Nietzsche was, um, you know, fascinated by resentment, to use the French word. Um, and I find one of the clearest expedi expeditions, expositions of resentment um, in the uh, in the uh, Wikipedia uh, page on resentment, and I recommend people to look at it. It's simple. It's like right to the point, and it really um, it really resonates. Okay, and, crash course and resentment. Yeah. Awesome. Everybody, thank you for listening. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful. You can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.